Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. Carry neither money bag, knapsack, nor sandals, and greet no one along the road. But whatever house you enter, first say peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. And if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you. And heal the sick there. And say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whatever city you, go, you enter and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, the very dust of your city which clings to us we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near you. But I say to you that it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. He who hears you, hears me. He who rejects you, rejects me. And he who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Then the seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. And he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and have not seen it, and to hear what you hear and have not heard it. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. And he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus answered and said, 
A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he sent him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, He who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. God add his blessing to that reading of his word. This morning we come to the parable of the Good Samaritan here in Luke chapter 10. As with a few other of Jesus' longer parables, it is one of the most frequently misunderstood parts of Scripture. I'll say that again, it is frequently misunderstood. One well-known preacher has said that, quote, we must not miss the fact that this parable is an answer to the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It appears that Jesus sees care for the poor as part of the essence of being a Christian. He is giving the impression that this is the answer to how you become a Christian. This is, in fact, how you are saved. And you can see how someone might make that kind of mistake. You have this man coming to Jesus and asking him how to inherit eternal life and gets told, what does the law say? Do this and you will live. Now, frankly, if if one of us at the book table yesterday had given an answer like that to a question like that, someone comes up and says, what must I do to live? What must I do to have eternal life? And we were to give that kind of answer. What does the law say? Do that law perfectly and you will live. I, I suspect we'd be taken off the rota. I suspect that that would not be considered an acceptable answer. Well, we're assuming that Jesus is in fact giving a gospel, giving the gospel to a seeker who is seeking him. We're expecting to find the gospel in his answer. But this is where context is so incredibly important. Whenever we look at the word of God, we have to see what the context is. And this was not a poor man burdened with his sin, coming in sincerity to seek the Lord Jesus Christ for mercy. This was a self-righteous lawyer who was putting Christ to the test. Verse 25, Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him. Don't, Don't neglect that. Tested him. That word is actually a little stronger than that. It is a severe testing or a tempting. Deuteronomy 6.16 uses the same word. You should not tempt, same word, the Lord your God. Christ quotes this text when he's been tempted by Satan. In Luke 4.12, it has been said you should not tempt, very same word, the Lord your God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.9, nor let us tempt Christ, same word, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. And that very thing, that thing that was so explicitly and completely forbidden for anyone to ever do, 
tempting Christ, that is exactly what this lawyer is doing here in Luke chapter 10. And that colors everything. That sets the scene. Now you understand what the situation is and now you understand why Jesus answered as he did. You know, that no greater treasure could possibly be imagined than the gospel. And Jesus says in Matthew 7, 6, Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine. And when Satan came to tempt him, when Satan came hopefully to destroy Christ, he did not hear the gospel from the lips of Christ, did he? He never heard the gospel. And likewise, this man, this expert in the law, this lawyer, we should not expect that he was going to hear it from the lips of Christ. And so if you're looking for the gospel in this passage, if you're looking for the way to become a Christian, you will not find it because it is not there. Jesus' first answer is designed to rebut someone who is trying to entrap him. And his second answer is given to disabuse someone who wanted to justify himself. In other words, we don't have a gospel for the seeker here, but we have law for the lawyer. And that is the name, that is the title of this sermon. It is Law for the Lawyer. Now, of course, if you happen to have come here wanting to hear the good news, we will get around to it. But we find it here only as it is absent. We find it in its conspicuous in its absence. In fact, it drives us to Christ. It brings us to a statement of that good news. But we have to wait to hear it. So again, the title is Law for the Lawyer. And there are these four alternating points. There's the lawyer's test, and then there's Christ's answer. There's the lawyer's sidestep, and there's Christ's parable. So first, the lawyer's test. We read in the first verse of the section in verse 25, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, in what sense could a question like that at all be considered a testing or a tempting even of Christ? Well, it's the very same sense that we're going to see later on in Luke chapter 20. They ask him, saying, Teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly. And you do not show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God and truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, why do you test me? You see, he understands that there's a craftiness. There's a trying to catch him in his words because they're looking for reasons to accuse Jesus to the authorities. And one of the potential weaknesses, one of the ways that they thought they might find him was with regard to paying taxes to the Roman government. Another one was centered on the idea that Jesus was in any way disallowing or overturning the law of Moses. That's the background in Matthew 5.17. Do not think that I have come to destroy the law, because that's what they thought, that he had come to destroy the law. Of course he hadn't. But that whole idea is still in operation by the time we get to the martyrdom of Stephen in Acts chapter 6. They set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. That is the, blas- that is the, the accusation, that is the trap, trying to get Jesus to say something against the law as if it did not apply. And so if they could get something to say like, The law is unnecessary, the law has changed, it's less than it used to be then they would have him. That is the nature of the lawyer's test. And so the specific question is, 
Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I, I would give this, this law expert a little bit of credit because at least he knows that there is eternal life and that some would, in fact, inherit this eternal life. He knows that there is a heaven. He must have therefore been a Pharisee because the Sadducees denied that there was anything beyond this life at all. They were, as so many people today, who think that when you die, that is it. But the Pharisee had that much right. There is eternal life. The problem is, the question is framed, what shall I do to inherit this life? Now, I begin at this point to wonder exactly how much of an expert in the law he really was, because what part of the law of Moses would possibly suggest that such a thing is possible? Way back in Genesis 3, what, what happens there in the fall of man? What happens? God drives out the man and he places cherubim on the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Do you see what that is? One layer upon another layer to say this, that the way to life is beyond the possibility of human hands to grasp. It is kept from us. It is impossible. We are fallen sinners. We are in sin. We are dead in sin and utterly unable to earn God's favor. And you say, well, what about the ceremonial law? That had things to do. Yes, but what sort of things? The ceremonial law is chock full of not things that you can do to earn eternal life, but of reminders there must be an atonement made on your behalf by someone else. Like in Leviticus 4. Now the whole congregation of Israel, now if the the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally, then what? Then the assembly shall offer a young bull for the sin, bring it to the tabernacle of meeting. And verse 20, the priest shall make atonement for them and it shall be forgiven them. Priest makes atonement, it's forgiven. Leviticus 4.22, when a ruler has sinned or done something unintentionally, so the priest shall make atonement for him concerning his sin and it shall be forgiven him. Or verse 27, if any of the common people sins unintentionally, so the priest shall make atonement for him and it shall be forgiven him. So if the question had been like this, if the law expert comes to Jesus and says something like this, the way of of life, the way to life is shut to me. I know that. I have sinned unintentionally. So I've, I've sinned not just unintentionally, but I've sinned intentionally. And unfortunately, this ceremonial law does not offer a solution for me. But I have heard that there's a Messiah coming. I've heard that he's going to save his people somehow. And I know that Isaiah 53 says, he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. Now maybe I'm wrong, but it almost sounds like that there's a solution here, that this Messiah just might be able to offer an atonement for Is that you, Jesus? Are you the Messiah? And are you going to offer some sort of atonement that I might have eternal life? That would be a good question. That would be a question worthy of a true expert in the law, but not what can I do to inherit eternal life? Now, the reason, of course, that idea came to him is not merely because he wanted to test Jesus, but because the answer to that question that he had in mind is the default setting of the human heart. It's universal. And it's because actually the root of it is because God has placed the covenant of works into our hearts. That covenant of works that, was, that began before the fall of man. And that theoretically Adam certainly could have upheld that. 
He was unfallen. He could have obeyed the law of God and he would have been brought into everlasting life. But since the fall of man, all that covenant of works does is to condemn us because we know that we cannot keep this law. The wages of sin, even one sin, is death. And you had that much before you were born and the the guilt of original sin. And from that point, you have been accumulating sins beyond your ability to count or even to remember. And so in actuality, not in hypothetical possibility, but in actuality, there is nothing you can do to inherit eternal life. Well, that was our first point. That's the nature of the test, the nature of the temptation. Secondly, Christ's answer, he answers the challenge with a question of his own. He says to him, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? That was, of course, a great answer. There's nothing that he could say. And in fact, the law expert gives a very good answer. He answers and says, because the answer again is, what is written in the law? We are talking about law. The whole thing is about law. It's not about gospel. The whole thing is about law. And he answers, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Well, he's got it right. These are the first and second great commandments. Jesus himself answers almost precisely the same in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. You shall love the Lord your God with your heart, all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your mind. That is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He says this, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Okay, that summarizes the law. The first table of the law about God, you, you love God. And the second table is with your neighbor. You love your fellow man. That's the law. And he's not saying anything new that he hadn't already said in the Sermon on the Mount. In Luke 6.31, just as you want men to do to you, you do to them also. Or Matthew 7.12, therefore whatever you want men to do to you, you do to them. For this is the law and the prophets. And the lawyer had the right answer. Jesus said to him, you have answered rightly. That word is actually the very same word we would use for orthodox. You are orthodox. You are right about what the law says. Do this and you will live. And if someone were in fact able to keep this perfect law perfectly every moment of their existence, then they would in fact live. But that is very hypothetical. That is a big major if. But Jesus has parried the attack. And Jesus' grasp of the law is irrefutable. What then is this man going to say now? He's passed the test. Now what is he going to say? Well, now I think that the the weight of the law is beginning to reach him. Now I believe that he is beginning to feel just a little bit of the condemnation. And so that brings us to our, our third point. Christ has answered that much. But now we have the lawyer's sidestep. Because as the force of the law begins to reach him, he moves to the side. But he, verse 29, wanting to justify himself, says to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Now keep in mind, the first point was to test him. We have to understand Jesus' answer as a response to that tempting, that testing. And now we have a desire to justify himself. And you can bet that if someone comes to the Lord Jesus Christ trying to justify himself, trying to say, I am good enough to earn my salvation, I can keep this law, then Jesus is going to say something that is, he's going to repay in their own coin. He's going to say something that will deal with them in their foolishness. 
Well, who is my neighbor? That's an old trick, you see. That's an old trick that the rabbis had of trying to keep the demands of the law down to some keepable standard. And they had done that. At the very least, they said it only applies to fellow Israelites. The Pharisees had taken it a step further and said, neighbor, that just means other Pharisees. So even if you're living next door to me and you're an Israelite, if you're not a Pharisee, then that doesn't actually count as being a neighbor. And that's great. That's very convenient because then that means that the the standards of the law are something well within your grasp. You can imagine it, can't you? If you designed that to work for only those who lived precisely as you did, believed precisely as you did, and all the rest of it, then you could maybe find a way to love them. Well, we could go on to say, of course, that even those, if we were to restrict it even further to our own family, who among us has really truly loved even our own family precisely as ourselves, but that we're just, this is the Pharisees' game. They're trying to make it a little bit more keepable, and this is the sides of, well, who is my neighbor? Almost like a child, right? Well, then he says, what does the law say? He, now, consider this. What does the law say, by the way? This is an expert on the law. What does it say? Let's say that someone is not merely a friend, not merely not a friend, not merely not part of your, fam- your family or your party, but is actually an enemy. Well, what did the law say about that? Well, the law says that puts him in a special protected category. Proverbs twenty five twenty one: if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. And it said, even with regard to his animal, Exodus 23, 3, this is the law, brothers and sisters, the law. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under his burden and you would refrain from helping it, you shall surely help it with him. That's his animal. If you see his animal in trouble, you must help. How much more so he himself. And so Jesus says in Matthew 5:43, not adding a wit to the core of the law, he says, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. And that's what Jesus then needs to show to this lawyer. Who is my neighbor? What is he going to do with a sidestep from God's law? Well, our fourth point is Christ's parable. He gives a little parable to explain this situation. And, and in essence, he says, you want the law? You want the full force of the law? You want to see who your neighbor is? Let me explain that to you. And he gives them this parable, which so many of us know, have known from childhood, so very powerful. It's irrefutable. Verse 30, then Jesus answered and said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now that's important. A certain man from Jerusalem is going down because Jerusalem is at 26 and a, and a half hundred feet above sea level. And Jericho is actually below sea level down in the, the Jordan Valley. And he fell among thieves. It was unfortunately notorious for that possibility. The geography apparently lent itself to that. Fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And of course, keep in mind that this may not always have been patrolled by the police. There were no CCTV or other such things. The only, the only chance for a traveler that was caught in such a situation is for someone to have pity on him. Now, by chance, a certain priest came down that road. Oh, priest. Great. Well, he knows the law, doesn't he? 
And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now we can try to find some way of excusing this priest, but the fact is we know that the priest understood the law. And you know what he's doing? He's not, you could, some people have said, well, he's, he's, he's got an appointment to be at the temple. And he's got to hurry up and, and he's got to perform the religious ceremonies that he's required to do. And he just did not have time. But the funny thing is, Listen to the text. He's going from Jerusalem back down to Jericho. A lot of the priests lived in Jericho. That was their home. He's, he's done probably with his time at the temple. He is done with his turn at the rota in manning the temple and doing the religious ceremonies. And now he's going back home. He's got time. But he sees, and notice that important as we consider the definition of the neighbor. We're not speaking that the, the same level of, of demand does not, does not reach us for all seven billion people in this world, but those whom we actually see. He saw it. It wasn't that his sight was, was poor and he was concentrating on other things and he, he completely missed the bleeding, moaning, half-dead man on the side of the street. He saw him. And he then particularly took the opportunity to go to the other side of the road. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. Interesting, by the way, uh, by chance, it says this happens. By chance, Jesus says that. You know, we as Reformed Christians sometimes will go out of our way not to say that because we know there's no such thing as by chance. And Jesus knows that as well. There is no chance. God had sent this priest to this place in order that he might be the rescuer of that poor man. And he sidesteps his duty before God and his duty before man. Not just the priest, but also the Levite, this holy tribe, the holy tribe that was not given its own land because the Lord himself was their inheritance and they were set apart to serve the people. And he sidestepped on the other side as well. Well, verse 33, a certain Samaritan, you know, Samaritan, they hated Samaritans. They were the half-breeds. They were the compromisers, false Jews. A certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And we saw him. Now, the funny thing is, it was not a Samaritan that was the man that was beaten up. It was a Jew. It was rather the Samaritan who had mercy on him. This one who probably doesn't know the law. They don't even worship in Jerusalem. They don't have a clue. And what it says is that he had compassion. And the word again is a little bit stronger than that. He was moved. His his bowels were moved with compassion. It welled up in him. The same verse, or the same word in, in Mark 6.34. Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them. Because they were like sheep having no shepherd. And this is the situation. Yes, a Samaritan could have rightly surmised some way or another this this man was a Jew. But what he saw was a human being in need, about to die, and he was moved with compassion for him. And for that reason, then in verse 34, So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. Now that, brothers and sisters, is the law. That is the law. It is, in some parts, it is, in some aspects, it is written on the human heart, that desire. You don't even have to be a Christian to know that that's the way you ought to act. 
And the sad and, and pathetic thing is that people had been using the word of God to make it undo what would come naturally to them. It would come naturally to these men, we hope, to have compassion. But they pushed that under by their definition of who their neighbor was and decided to sidestep it. And it is reprehensible. And even that man, even that man, as he stood under condemnation, seeing what the Samaritan had done, no doubt, he was convicted that this was the right thing to do. Because that Jew, it could have been him. That Jew, it could be you. The question is, what would you want someone to do for you in such a situation? That's the implication of loving your neighbor as yourself. If you were in the situation of the man who had been attacked, you would want someone to take pity on you and to take care of you. And what would you think of that priest who passed you by? Would you say, well, there goes a holy man, he's busy. I understand. Or would you say, I cannot believe that you are so heartless and so cold as to leave me here to die. You want the law? Here it is. The question is, have you kept it? Have you kept this law, Mr. Lawyer, Mr. Law Expert? Have you, in fact, done this all of your life? Well, that surely brings us to the first of our applications, which is that you must stand convicted under this law. You wanted to hear the law? You wanted Jesus to clarify it for you? Well, here it is. And I ask you, are you a lawyer? I don't mean by profession. I don't mean in the civil law. I mean in a different way. I mean, are you an expert on the law? Does that question occur to you of what I must do to inherit eternal life? Because that's what makes you a lawyer in this sense. You want to relate to God in terms of what you can do. You want to relate to God in terms of the law. You don't like the idea of grace. You want the law. Well, let me ask you. And you want to do it like this, like the rich young ruler, maybe. In Matthew 19, 16, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And I'm guessing that you have some expectation of actually meeting that requirement. You come in the sense of, just tell me what the requirement is. You know, if I stop doing this particular sin as much, if I reconcile with this particular person, if I have a better religious record, if I go to church more faithfully, just name the requirement. That's, that's what I want to know. Name the requirement and I'll do it. You're a lawyer. You're an expert in the law, and you think that you can keep it. Well, I want to say, giving up sin is good. It is. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says this, Do do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. And if those words describe you, if you are an unrepentant fornicator, idolater, adulterer, homosexual, thief, covetous man or woman, drunkard, reviler or extortioner, do not kid yourself. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. So yes, absolutely. Giving up those sins, that's necessary. But it's not enough. Going to church, that's a good thing. Our confession says in in 25.2, it says this, The visible church consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and of their children and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which 
There is no ordinary possibility of salvation. And if you're outside of the visible church, then don't kid yourself either. Except for some very extreme situations like the thief on the cross, you're not going to heaven either. So going to church, that's a good and necessary thing, but it is not enough. Because I'm willing to bet that the lawyer in the story probably had both of these things. He was in the visible church. And he, if you'd ask him, would you describe this man as a drunkard? Would you describe him as an idolater or those other things? Probably not. Probably not. Jesus is saying that the standards of God's law are absolutely perfect. Absolutely perfect. And he's saying in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's no exception. And you cannot keep God's law. So if you come as a lawyer, be disabused. Rather, stand convicted that you are a sinner. No way that you can save yourself. But standing in the need of the mercy of God. And if you're now in that condition... And my second application is, let me tell you what was left unsaid. Because there are things left unsaid. He's not, he didn't cast his pearls before swine. There is something left unsaid. If you've come to try to to prove Jesus wrong, you've been rebuked. If you've come to try to justify yourself to prove that you've kept God's law, you've been disabused. But let's not pretend it, it was somebody with a different agenda. Let's pretend that it was someone who didn't want to disprove Jesus, but actually wanted to learn from him. Someone who already knew that they were a sinner and beyond any possibility of keeping God's law. Then what? Someone who was acting like a true expert of the law that we mentioned. What would have Jesus have said to such a person then? Well, praise God, we actually have something close to that in John chapter 3. In John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. They're condemned in their sin because they've not kept this perfect law. And the only way of escape is that atonement that I mentioned. There is an atoning sacrifice. The whole law, the ceremonial law of Moses pointed to it. And all the prophets prophesied about Christ coming to make atonement on your behalf. So that if you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Acts 2.37 they were cut to the heart. They were convicted. They believed that they were, they were under sin. They were sinners. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Now it sounds kind of similar, doesn't it? It sounds a little bit similar to what the, the man had said. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And here they're saying, what shall we do? But they're not saying it as a lawyer. They're saying as those under conviction of sin, and Peter gives them the treasure. He gives them the truth of the gospel, and he says, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent of your sin. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That was what was left unsaid. And now you've heard it. Believe it. 
Thirdly, and finally for Christians, I want you to understand that this is the standard. There are three uses of the law, not two. We just went over the second use, which is to convict you. The point of that that should have been is that the man should have come under conviction of his sin and said, I came here thinking I could save myself, but now I know I can't. That's a good second use of the law. It brings you to Christ. But we don't stop there. There's a third use as well. We don't then say, well, glad that 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 part of the law doesn't apply to me because I couldn't keep it and it's a bit inconvenient. Actually, there's a third use of the law which says this is an expression of God's eternal moral character and that you have been saved precisely so that you can obey this law. It is God's desire, it is God's command that you obey this law. It is the same law that has always been there and if you've been saved, then you ought to obey it. You can't escape it. This is the standard by which we must live. The story, now let's be clear, the story does not say that there was a man who fell into relative to the poverty line, fell into poverty. And a Samaritan church established some broad spectrum social justice and mercy project that transformed the culture and lifted him out of his poverty. It doesn't say that, okay? Be clear. What it says is that there was an individual Samaritan going about his ordinary business who happened to come upon a man who was in great need of immediate help, and he should have given him that immediate help, and he did, and that's what you should do. Go and do likewise. And brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian, that is for us. That is the demand of the law. That is what God expects you. Go and do likewise. There's no getting out of that. There's no, but who is my neighbor really? You'll know because in the providence of God, you'll encounter someone in the course of your day who is in urgent need of help. He's your neighbor. You should stop. What should you do? You should stop and help him. Now, the question is how? How? And that, by the way, it includes lots of things. It could be for prayer. Maybe you've got to stop when you find out something. You find a neighbor who's in trouble. You need to stop and pray for them. Maybe that's the minimum. Maybe there's other many things of practical nature that you need to do to help them. And the question is how? How can we do it? You say, I'm so busy. I'm so strapped. And, and here's where the, the sermon now turns from something I'm declaring absolutely in the word of God. I'm declaring it to you to somewhere where I say, I think this is a a practical possibility for doing it, and I wish I knew how to do it better. But but my suggestion is to create better margins for ourselves to do that. All right? Living in obedience to this demand of the law requires time and money. It did for the Samaritan, and it will for us. That means that there must be a little bit of a reserve. There must be a little bit of margin in terms of time and money in order for us to be able to help. And if we're continually, absolutely at the end of it, absolutely up against it in terms of your schedule and in terms of your budget, then you will find it almost impossible to be obedient. And so what I'm saying, I do not speak from good experience. I wish I could. But you've got to create some margins in these things. Because if 10 minutes is going to break your schedule so that you cannot be obedient to everything else you've been called to do, because of 10 minutes, you're never going to be able to do this. If 10 pounds is going to break the bank because you always live to exactly what you get, then you're not going to be able to do this. You have got to be able to create some margins for yourself in time and resources that will enable you to do this, to keep God's law. We've got to live more within our means in terms of time and money. How again, now I'm really preaching to myself at this point, less 
Me time. Sometimes it is spoken as if me time is somehow sacrosanct. No, there is God time. It is here on Sunday. It is God's time. And there is daily rest to be given to us in sleep. But I don't see anything in the word of God that says that we have some non-negotiable me time. Nor do I say with regard to the things that we spend, these indulgences that we spend on ourselves. If you can, and the providence of God has been so good to you that you can afford to go some nice, faraway place for a wonderful long holiday, and you can afford to buy necessities for somebody when the need arises, go for it. But if you, having spent that money on yourself, means that you're not able to do everything else that God would desire you to do when the situation arises, then you've got to do something else. Maybe you're down to camping in the UK. I don't know. Again, I'm preaching to myself. What I know is we should love our neighbor. And if in the providence of God we come across someone who's in trouble, we should help them. Go and do likewise. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, you are so good to us. You have given us that which you did not give this man. In his pride and in his self-sufficiency, all you did was to confute and convict him. And Lord, you are glorified even in this. And we ourselves, maybe we, have some part of this lawyer, this law expert in ourselves who would wish to justify ourselves, who would wish to define a way, to explain away your law so we're not caught by it. But, oh Lord, how we pray that we would not be so foolish. But if there are any there, any here who are not believers, who have not put their faith in Christ, that they would do this, that they'd realize there is no reformation in itself that they can do that will be sufficient for them to earn salvation. But rather, Lord, that they repent, yes, repent of their sins, but they put their faith in Christ for salvation. And how, Lord, we pray for ourselves in this. That we would do the law, we would be obedient to the law, the great commandment which everyone knows is true, to love our neighbor as ourselves. And that you'd help us, therefore, to live slightly more within our means in terms of our time and our resources. That we might be able to do as that good Samaritan and to help those who are in need. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.